those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back to the Vegan Vanguard podcast. We've taken a bit of time away, but uh, here we are. It's me, Mexi, and Mad Blender, Leslie. Mad Blender, <laughs> Leslie. <laughs> Whatever you want to call me. <laughs> yeah, so really happy to have Leslie back on the show. Uh, we did an episode together about capitalism and mental health, which was, I think, a really dope episode, and it was really well received by everyone. So it was really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> yeah, me too. So yeah, Leslie and I today are going to talk about the potential of using a meat tax for the climate and maybe to a lesser extent for health. I mean, depending on who you are or what you're arguing. But uh, first, we're going to shout out the patrons, the new patrons for this month, I guess. And I just want to say a very, very big thanks to the existing patrons as well. I posted you know, that I had to take a bit of time off for health reasons and that we weren't going to put out a show in the month of February. And I was all anxious about it, but everyone was so super supportive and, you know, loving, caring <laughs> about my health and everything and just the workload that me and Marine have been having. So that felt really good. Just want to say thanks to everyone for your understanding and very glad to be back. So if you like what you hear today and always, you can support the show by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard or toss us a one-time donation via PayPal. And we actually just got an enormous donation via PayPal by Sebastian Barrett. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Maureen and I were shocked by the, the size of this generous donation. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We're going to put that to good use. We want to commission some actual music for the show, some intro music and segue music and things like that. So we put to good use. And thank you also to Harry Knees, Johan Lagerquist, Naomi, Dan Hill, Jimmy Melnarik, and Kenji A. And if I've missed anyone, please send me a message on Patreon and let me know. Um, it's, you know, it's been a little while since we've been back on the show, but just want to say thank you to all of our supporters. And if you don't have the financial means to support us via Patreon or PayPal, then giving us a rating and review on iTunes actually is awesome and really helps us to increase our reach. So. <laughs> Yay. Yay! So now, before we get into our main topic, we're going to read out, as usual, headlines for the future sent in by listeners. Uh, if this is the first show that you're listening to, then since the start of the year, um, Marine and I have been commissioning or you know asking our listeners to send in headlines that they dream up for the future that they want to see. So imagine that 
10, 20, 50, 100 years in the future, the world that we're fighting for has come to be. We're living in a post-capitalist, hopefully vegan future. Uh, what would some of the headlines be in newspapers or blogs or whatever that you'd be reading? And this is inspired by Adrian Marie Brown, kind of um, immersion strategy type ideas, which you can go back and listen to previous episodes to learn more about. But we've been getting so many amazing headlines sent in by the listeners. So I'm going to read some out. And Leslie has not heard these, so... <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get Leslie's reactions to these headlines. And uh, yeah. So again, if you're new to the show, the reason that we're doing this is we really wanted to orient our energy in 2019 towards what we're building. Um, we spend a lot of energy on critique and tearing everything down that we hate and that is awful and oppressing so many people, which is very important to do. But we also want to make sure that we have some dream vision for the future that we're walking towards that inspires us and uplifts us and, you know, gives us energy to, to go forward in that direction. So in that, in that vein, we have uh, Putri from Jakarta. And their headline is, International Linguists Invent the First Progressive Bridge Language in Human History. So let me just give a bit of background. They've given a lot of background as to why they've chosen this headline. Um, so they said that they are Indonesian, but was not born or raised in Indonesia, even though they currently live in Jakarta. And their first language is English, but they also speak German and Japanese, and of course, Indonesian. And over the years, um, they say, I've come to realize how being able to speak the first three languages have benefited me in many aspects of my life, especially here, since they are from developed nations, but unfortunately, the same thing cannot be said about knowing Indonesian. Ironically, I am an English teacher, and I've always had mixed feelings about my own role in solidifying English as the world's longstanding lingua franca. While I generally consider language in more practical terms, I'm also fully aware of the many ways it can be used to oppress people. Any language that enjoys the highest rank can be subverted, as countless colonial struggles proved, but at the end of the day, there's always a price to pay." So I hope I'll still be alive when a new language detached from all notions of dominance and privilege comes along, a truly progressive language that can be learned and used by anyone regardless of who they are or where they're from. I want a language that can help us maximize our human potential. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I love, love, love that idea so much. <laughs> well, and in the United States, we kind of have this idea that anyone that comes here should be speaking English no matter what, right? So I totally mm -hmm. understand uh, where they're coming from with uh, language being used as you know, a form of power and to uphold certain power structures. And I think that's just like such a fabulous idea. Um, I would love mm -hmm. to see something like that. I'm not sure how that could come about, but yeah. I mean, I think people are working on it, like on are working on languages that can be um, yeah, learned by everyone and that are kind of detached from things. Although I've I never hope, heard of that. That's yeah, I've, I've heard about it, but I, I don't really know any language that's like come from something like that. But I would also hope to, to have it. Um, I don't know how to design languages in this way. But for example, the difference between like indigenous languages and English, um, you know, a lot of people will say like English is the language of commerce and the language that you speak mm. structures the way that you actually think about 
the entire world. And Mm -hmm. that obviously makes sense because it's like the way that you talk about things, the way that you call things, the way that you phrase things, it structures the way that you understand it, right? Or it all comes from the same kind of overall worldview. And I've just been learning a lot about how many indigenous languages are mostly verb-based, like they're 80% verb-based, and they don't assign, you know, possessive uh, qualities to things, or they don't assign blame to things. Like if if this cup fell, if I knocked this cup off the table, it wouldn't be like, oh, Megan knocked the cup down. It would be the cup fell or like falling or, you know, and just the way right. that they use tenses and verbs and things like that. It, um, it really does structure the way that you understand things because it's if you don't have terms or if you don't label things as, you know, possessive, if you don't frame things as, you know, this person did this, <laughs> then then mm, it's just a different yeah. way of understanding the world, right? So I feel like if we did have some universal language, I would hope that it would be I would hope that it would be one that would, you know, structure our understanding of things in a way that was not based on like commerce or competition or individualism or et cetera. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And um, not to get too woo-woo here, but um, I used to <laughs> read a lot of, um, I don't know if you ever heard of Eckhart Tolle. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I look to an outside object and I give it a label, I automatically lose my relationship with it because Mm -hmm. I automatically think of the tree in my mind. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking at a tree, I would automatically picture it in my mind and think I already know what a tree is. So I wouldn't actually go be connecting with it in nature, if that makes sense. Or you know what I mean? That's more like a spiritual type thing and doesn't really have to do with this, but it kind of does because it just Mm -hmm. goes along with the way we think about things in general, people in general. I mean, it works with people too. Like, if, mm-hmm. if I um, am, am talking with someone, I already have like these preconceived notions in my head of, of mm. what they are. And half the time, I'm not even in the moment listening to what they have to say. I, that's totally mm-hmm. like a random tangent. But anyway, no, <laughs> no. that's what kind of got me thinking of that. Yeah, no, that totally that does make sense. And I, I just was watching um, Philosophy Tube's latest video, which is brilliant. It's so good. Oh, my God. Brilliant. So Everyone needs to go watch <laughs> this, this video. But Anyway, he brings in Arrival, the movie, where that movie where Amy Adams and them are trying to communicate with the aliens. And that's also what they were saying that, you know, yeah, the language that we use structures how Mm. we relate to the world around us. And it's something that I think nobody really thinks about. But then when you dig into it and when you look at the way that other languages frame things and then what that means for people, it's just it's really powerful. So, yeah, I really like that that headline. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. So now we have some from Angelique Isles. Um, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, They have offered quite a number of them. So I'm just going to choose, well, I'm going to choose a number of them, but not all. (laughs) Okay. Electronics manufacturers must now offer a five-year warranty on all products. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you don't have to pay like yeah, exorbitant have- amounts for them. Is that what they're saying? <laughs> yes, I think. Well, that's. I'm just adding that to the the headline right, myself. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to pay like yeah, 149 bucks per year for the warranty. Right. 
Um, okay, single-use plastics to be banned by December 2020. Whew. It's coming up, although I'm, yeah. I know there's a lot of debate about the, you know, ableism of the straw thing, so. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it, but yeah. I like I mean, it, but yeah, we need yeah. some like viable alternatives. Right. Um, okay, worldwide ban on exotic and wild animals as pets or entertainment. I mean, that should, yeah, yeah that should already be <laughs> happening right now. Yes, yes, yes. I love I'm it. I'm pretty sure exotic <laughs> animals are already banned as pets. Yeah. In most parts of the world, I would I mean, think, like, right? I guess animals that are exotic to us if we went if i went to thailand like i could see a show of elephants like dancing around but you could see that in the circus here too right right so yeah let's ban that all right now yes (laughs) canada returns crown land to natives yes yes that That was part of my transition in my headlines as well so important yes um cities leave unmown paths and the native bee population climbs important yeah uh you did a, a podcast what's what's the um what's her name you did a podcast with about the bees uh molly no becky ellis why do i always call her molly <laughs> yes <laughs> becky ellis oh that episode was so good i am very uh not educated about the bees and that was a really good podcast episode you did with her explaining some of that stuff and why it's so important yeah, Becky Ellis is amazing. Go check out her podcast. It's called Permaculture for the yeah. People. It's great. I'm oh, actually, yeah, that's right. She does have a really good podcast too, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually having her come in to talk to my class tomorrow about bees. Oh, really? And yeah, so awesome. I, I think she would really like that headline. Absolutely. Petrol stations struggle as 80% of cars on road are now hybrid or electric. Oh, yeah, good. Definitely. Yeah, that's dope. Um, although I guess it depends where we're getting our, our electricity. <sighs> yeah, the world, the world, the world. All of these issues are just super, super complicated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's good. Fuck petrol yeah, stations for sure. Uh, cap on home ownership comes into effect today. Owners of multiple properties sell second and third homes. I would like to see those homes expropriated. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm with you. <laughs> Although I guess it depends on someone's like situation, but still. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just hard to be okay with people having multiple homes when other people have done. You know? Yeah, and then getting to like actually sell those. Right, um, right. Especially exactly. if it, those are not affordable for other people. Right. Um, but cap on home ownership is a good good one for sure yeah i actually did a video with philosophy tube you can go, <laughs> that go was see. an amazing video as well <laughs> so good thanks girl yeah all right well that's it for today i have many more submissions but i will get to those in future episodes and if you would like to contribute your own headlines please reach out via social media or send those to us via email at veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com yeah yeah okay so getting into the topic for today this was a question sent by a listener named rebecca who i actually follow on instagram so hey rebecca thank you for this question rebecca sent over an article about uh carolyn lucas who's the green party the leader of the green party in the uk who is calling for a meat tax so rebecca says 
Obviously, there is a lot of backlash from people who think it will hurt the working class. I'm quite conflicted on this. People have called for fruit and vegetable prices to go down instead, but at what cost to the already underpaid, mostly people of color workers? I know under a capitalist system, there is no way that everyone can eat well and get paid enough, but do you think the meat tax is a good idea and has it worked anywhere else in the world? So I'm just going to go over here the article that Rebecca sent so that we get an idea of what Carolyn Lucas is saying. And then Leslie and I are going to break this all down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So in this article written in The Guardian, it says, Parliament must seriously consider levying a tax on meat to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help to render the farming industry carbon neutral. The Green Party MP, Carolyn Lucas, is urging. A meat tax in the UK could be offset from more sustainable meat producers, such as organic livestock farmers, through more money for sustainable agriculture schemes. If the world's diet doesn't change, we simply can't avoid the worst effects of climate change, Lucas says. Lucas has tabled the parliamentary motion to require farming to be net zero in emissions as quickly as possible, which would involve ways to reduce fertilizer use and increase the amount of organic matter in the nation's soils, both issues that Michael Grove, the environment secretary, also espouses. She said, we need to bring the whole food chain into the circle of responsibility, not leaving farmers to work on their own, together with clear signals that society will play its part in funding this transition through a new agriculture policy. And this has obviously come under attack from farming organizations such as the National Sheep Association, which says sheep farming is working to improve the environment rather than causing damage to it. Mm, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually so funny. I, I've looked at a lot of articles in the Canadian context, and oh man, the coverage of the issue is just pretty bad. And it mostly just gives voice to all of the, you know, cattle farmers <laughs> and everything. And they're all saying the exact same thing that actually cattle farming is a net benefit for the environment Ugh. because of the grass that sequesters co2 and i'm like i don't think you understand oh what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> or actually no. no i think you do and you're just trying to to like weasel your way out of it but exactly it's it's unbelievable that the main the people the main corporations in the in the farming industries that create the biggest issues actually are then claiming that they can fix the issues or somehow trying to turn it into a an overall good is mm -hmm. some mental gymnastics that I just cannot understand. <laughs> right. Well, it's also capitalism. You got to protect that bottom yes. line. Of course, of course, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to first go over the cost, like the cost of meat production and consumption on our society in terms of both financial cost, health cost, and environmental cost. And then we're going to go over some approaches that are being proposed to actually tax meat in order to save lives and save the planet. And then we're just going to give our kind of uh, – our hot takes on those. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think it's important when deciding whether a meat tax should be imposed to look at the ways that the meat industry really offloads the 
bulk of its costs onto society, right? So Mm -hmm. David Robinson Simon in his book, Meatonomics, um, talks about the impact of meat production. And he focuses specifically on the United States, but this could broadly be applied to other countries as well. Um, And he talks about how, you know, consumers have basically lost the ability to decide for themselves what to eat and how much to eat, and that those decisions are actually more and more being made by the meat and dairy producers who really control our buying choices uh, through a mixture of misleading messages, um, heavy control over legislation and regulation, Mm -hmm. uh, government subsidies, and all of that allows animal food producers to keep output high and prices artificially low, right? Mm -hmm. So they do this through a number of ways. But just uh, a couple numbers here. There is an estimated $414 billion in hidden costs that are placed on just Americans every single year. Those are the costs related, like you were saying, to healthcare, subsidies, environmental damage. So just for example, a $5 Big Mac would cost $13 if the retail price included those hidden expenses. So Mm. I mean, that's $8 in hidden costs for one Big Mac. Mm -hmm. So when talking about the subsidies, the American government spends $38 billion each year to subsidize the meat and dairy industries. And just for context, I'd like to add that the producers of fruits and vegetables are given 0.0%. 4% of that. So they're giving Damn. 17 million. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, it's ridiculous that we should be subsidizing fruits and vegetables yes. and not meat. Yes. yes. And when we're talking about subsidies, um, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but just uh, briefly, just to emphasize, this is not helping small farmers. Mm. Um, in the last 15 years, two thirds of American farmers didn't receive a single dollar from direct subsidies worth more than $100 billion. So these funds go to major corporations. Mm. Um, they actually, the subsidies actually end up spurring the growth of factory farms, which, I mean, obviously are not just bad for the environment uh, and for the animals, but also local economies mm-hmm. because uh, factory farms, they employ fewer workers per animal than regular farms, and they buy most of their supplies outside the local area. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a, in the United States, I don't know if they have these everywhere, but in the United States, we have something called checkoff programs that go hand in hand with subsidies. And these are mandatory taxes passed by Congress placed on animal food producers for promotion and research. So um, I'm sure most people have seen like magazine ads or commercials saying like milk does a body good or uh, beef, it's what's for dinner <laughs> or the incredible edible egg. Those are all those Mm-hmm. kinds of slogans. Um, all of those w- campaigns were created in cahoots between government and industry. So although the tax is technically levied on the industry, it is actually the USDA, which is the US Department of Agriculture, which appoints the leadership of these checkoff programs. It's the USDA that oversees the collection and the spending of the funds, and they edit and veto the messaging. So um, the Supreme Court actually ruled that when a checkoff program speaks, it is speaking for the government. So this is government speech. So basically, the government is all these ads telling mm. you that milk and body that milk does a body good and Ugh. all that stuff. These are government ads. Wow. And I should also add that these taxes end up being passed on to the consumer in the form of higher prices. So it's not like the industry is actually paying them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really becomes even more disturbing when you look at the role of and the missions of the USDA. 
Um, mm-hmm. Their first is to issue nutrition rec- recommendations. And the second is to promote the sale of meat and dairy. So obviously those are two conflicting missions, which is why in in one sentence, they'll tell you to eat lower cholesterol and fat. And then in the very next sentence, te- tell you to eat more meat and dairy, mm-hmm. which obviously doesn't make sense. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just so much conflict of interest here. It's... Uh, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. It's so gross. I, I really can't stand because I was in some of these articles, you know, people will be arguing against the tax. And I mean, you, you know, we're going to give our own arguments against the tax as well. But um, I can't stand seeing people's arguments being like, it's not appropriate to tax something that's in the Canadian food guide as essential. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just like, right. oh, God, like, don't you oh. know, this guide is complete bullshit. Right. And it's just funny. It's funny about those milk ads. I used to see those everywhere. It's so gross. <laughs> um, but my partner, not to throw my partner under the bus here, but when we first started dating, um, he said something to the tune of like, oh, yeah, drinking milk like after a workout is a good thing or something. And I was like, oh, honey, no. <laughs> I was like, no, God. I'm like, not only should you not drink that after a workout, you should never be drinking oh breast milk so- from a ruminant animal. <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, yeah, it's, it's real bad. Um, I know that's the same thing I think about um, is before when I first had my daughter before I was vegan and I just loaded her up with whole milk, um, mm. which I, I mean, well, breast milk is obviously fine, but I just remember thinking whole milk was like so good for her. And then mm. just after that, I went kind of down the vegan rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> ew, ew, what am I like feeding yeah. my kids? And, yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah I yeah. guess I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that not everyone listening to this is vegan and probably doesn't know all of the health impacts. Right. We're going to get to course. some of those later, but if you're interested, I would check out Forks Over Knives. I would check out um, Dr. Michael Greger, How Not to Die. <laughs> yeah. Great. Those kind of things. Great stuff. Anyway, so in terms of subsidies, Canada, I found also largely subsidizes our meat and dairy and egg industries. Uh, between 1986 and 2011, the subsidies ranged between six and eight billion US dollars. And I was reading an article that said the politics of farm subsidies have really long puzzled economists because agriculture is really an ever shrinking share of the economic output of most developed countries. But subsidies continue to be very high and increase. Um, And the number of farmers is also continuing to to dwindle because, duh, capitalism, everything is concentrating in fewer and fewer hands. It's getting consolidated into these huge agribusiness companies. So like in the 1970s, there was more than 100,000 farms in Canada. In 2012, this dropped to 12,500. And every year now, another 200 farms disappear as as these consolidate into, you know, these bigger conglomerate kind of operations, right? Mm. So yeah, we're definitely, definitely subsidizing the wrong stuff, you know? And that just shows too, the 
the power of these industries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least in the United States, the lobbying, the food lobbying industry, that's a $250 billion industry. Mm-hmm. So basically, meat and dairy industry um, are able to get legislation passed to protect themselves. It's called regulatory capture. They basically seek out regulators and convince them to pass legislation which regulates them in a way. They've mm-hmm. gotten laws passed which makes it illegal to criticize or investigate the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the ag gag laws. So there's you're not allowed to have any undercover investigations in factory farms. There's things called cheeseburger laws where plaintiffs aren't allowed to sue the industry for the health risks, you know, uh, disease or obesity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if someone gets sick, they're not allowed to sue the industry. Wow. There's food defamation laws. I mean, <laughs> the amount of protections for this industry is crazy. Uh-huh. It's just it's yeah. absolutely amazing. Like I could go into <laughs> McDonald's and burn my tongue on a hot coffee and sue, sue them for that. <laughs> yeah. But if someone gives me like botulism from a bad hamburger, <laughs> I can't sue the company or something. It's unbelievable. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I found the stat that meat consumption has grown more than five times between 1992 and 2016. And obviously, the population has not grown five times since then. So a lot of this has to do with artificially created demand from all this marketing horseshit and lobbying. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you look at, too, like the the industry-sponsored research now that comes out with all the studies, you have – it's so hard to tell the difference between a legit study and a – Mm-hmm. Not legit one because industry sponsored research is now so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, and obviously, you can tailor a, a study to give it any kind of results you want. Oh, yeah, of course. So, and that's what they do. That's absolutely what they do. Um, yeah. One thing I was reading said that industry sponsored studies are four times more likely to produce results favorable to industry. So, no shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why is it so important that we've increased meat consumption that much in that, you know, short of time? Uh, so we'll start with health, even though on the show, as you know, we don't discuss the health reasons for going vegan very much because we very much believe that veganism is a political stance and a political action that you take because you believe in animal liberation, you believe in total liberation, you believe that sentient bodies should not be commodified and sold and consumed, you believe that autonomous sentient beings have bodily autonomy that needs to be respected and we as people cannot impose our will and violate the bodily autonomy of other beings that do not consent to that, that's all very political. So that's that's how we like to frame veganism. But uh, looking into this meat tax thing, a lot of the arguments for taxing meat are health arguments coming from a number of people. So um, we thought it'd be good to bring these things up. 
especially because taxing meat is being compared to sin taxes on tobacco and sugar and alcohol and things like that. Um, so yeah, taking, taking a look at the health stuff first and then environmental stuff. So the World Health Organization, if you did not know, classifies processed meat as a group one carcinogen mm. in the same category as cigarettes and asbestos. <laughs> So there's that. And also they classify red meat as likely carcinogenic, even if eaten unprocessed. And I'm glad that they actually included that because not many people talk about that. And again, I think I already just recommended watching Forks Open Knives, but um, actually there's evidence that all meats, like just animal protein in general, is more carcinogenic than eating plant foods. So... It's also associated with increased rates of coronary heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, um, and yeah, like I said, several cancers. So the senior researcher at Oxford Martin Program on the Future of Food at the University of Oxford named Marco Springman did this big study, and it's it's been picked up by a lot of these um, articles that I was reading, you know, in The Guardian and et cetera. So he argues that a tax of 20% on unprocessed red meat and 110% tax on the more harmful processed meat across rich nations with lower taxes for less wealthy nations could prevent more than 220,000 deaths and over 40 billion US dollars globally in healthcare costs each year and raise 170 billion dollars in revenue that could be used for a number of purposes. So his idea was that every nation would be involved in this tax. It would be a worldwide international effort. And they calculated red meat taxes for 149 different countries with the rate changing depending on how much red meat those citizens eat and the costliness of their healthcare system. Uh, so the US would basically have the highest tax or among the highest tax mm. uh, with 160% tax on ham and sausage and a 34% tax on steaks. And Australians, which consume, I think they consume the second most meat in the world yeah, behind uh, the USA. They would face 109% tax on processed meats and 18% tax on unprocessed meats. Um, and then the rates in the UK would be 79% and 14%. However, in poor nations where people eat little meat, the tax rate would be close to zero. And that was one of the criticisms that people were saying, like, well, what about people in Bangladesh? How are they going to eat? Um, and, you know, and people were arguing that when the tax was only being proposed in Canada or something, right? It's just like, <laughs> why, why are you bringing that up? But anyway, so... <laughs> They've thought about that in, in this thing. So they said that the proposed taxes would result in a 16% reduction in processed meat eaten around the world, um, which would cut greenhouse gas emissions from livestock 110 million tons per year. And then they said people would also be healthier when they switched to healthier foods. And they said research in 2015 found that people's opposition to meat taxes significantly softened when the harms were explained. People feel the onus is on the government to act and using meat tax revenues to subsidize healthy foods is another idea touted to reduce opposition. Actually, uh, Australia is number one, I believe. I think Australia has 
the most consumption of meat and then America is number two or oh, United wow. States is number two. Yeah. Mm. But there have been like plenty of studies to show that Americans have twice the obesity rate, twice the diabetes rate, and nearly three times the cancer rate of people in the rest of the world. So I guess they're just, you know, using that to show that, you know, increased meat consumption really does have these effects. Um mm-hmm. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, obviously, there's been so much work done on that at this point. I mean, even, I mean, yeah, and all this work in the Oxford yeah. School of Nutrition has finally come out and agreed that plant based diets are the most healthful or that there's a lot of risks associated with eating uh, meat, dairy, and eggs. However, I don't know. I'm I'm obviously less convinced by this health argument, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons, and you know, PETA argues that quote it doesn't make sense that the millions of meat free Americans have to help pick up the tab through taxes and health insurance premiums when meat eaters get sick. A tax on meat would make the system more equitable, just as sin taxes for alcohol and cigarettes already do. And reading that, I was like, okay, no. That's a terrible (laughs) argument. That's awful. Like this whole argument of, but why should we pay for it if they're the ones getting sick? It's like, this is not okay. Um, I mean, I understand like people are are framing it that way because it's like, well, meat is a choice. Like you could choose not to eat meat. And, but I know like a a number of people usually come to me and say, well, I can't choose to not eat meat because I have this condition and my doctor said to eat meat. Right. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to like tell you what to do. I'm not your doctor. You know what I mean? Like that's right. So I'm just like, but for the most part, it is a choice, you know? Yeah. So I understand it to that extent, but at the same time, it's like, well, I'm vegan and I have endocrine system problems because of my eating disorder, because the society is so fucked up. Mm-hmm. So like are like other people without endocrine system pro- problems could be like, well, why am I paying for all these people with thyroid problems? Like when I don't even have one, you know, it's just right, like, <laughs> right. yeah, you could make that argument for you just can make that any- argument for yeah. anything. And that's how you get privatized healthcare. And, yes. uh, you know, so I just I don't really like this, this argument of like, what a burden it's putting on the taxpayers because all these meat eaters are clogging up the healthcare system with all their chronic illnesses, you know? Right. I mean, framing it as this could help save people's lives or this could help reduce coronary heart diseases. I mean, people should not be eating processed meats that are a class one carcinogen. Like, right. like big companies should not be able to sell that to people. Exactly at all right it's just like well that's true like you like we we got we get upset at cigarette companies for selling people carcinogens and so we tax them and we made them put those horrible photos on every box of of cigarettes of people like in the hospital dying and stuff Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean you should have these horrible photos of people with coronary heart disease on every package of of processed meat right so it's like well yeah i mean People should be aware of that. I'm not sure a tax. I mean, I don't know. 
there's something to be said for it, but also I think that's a not a great argument. Yeah, I, I mean, in general, I just have a problem with framing it as like the way to fix the problem is through consumer choice or consumer mm. spending, because I think ultimately, like if you look at the ways that the industry works, like they should not be kind of like you just said, they should not be allowed to process meat to the extent that it comes to be a carcinogen. Although I think you even said. Um, just plain red meat just is a plain, yeah <laughs> but 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 that just goes to show too but every level of processing adds another layer of profit so mm. this is why they're doing it. this is why they're processing the shit out of stuff because it, mm. it adds more profit so and that's what's driving the whole system so i think we're going to talk about this later that you mm. know kind of a whole systemic overhaul which is you know what i think ultimately we need mm-hmm. but I, I guess attacks alongside a lot of other stuff could potentially mm-hmm. be okay but i just hate framing it as you know it's it's because of the consumers and their choices that yeah this is all happening for sure for sure i mean it would have to be like it would have to be like i said like like if we were just doing this for health which i don't think we should just do it for health i think it's more compelling to think about the environmental costs and also just yeah. the fucking lives of the animals. Hello. You're right. Um, but yeah, if we were doing it for health, it would have to be something akin to the cigarette thing where it, it wasn't just you slapped a tax on. It was like a whole information campaign, like yeah. government sponsored like ads being like, hey, this is what happens when you smoke. And like, hey, here's pictures of what happens on every carton. And hey, here's, you know what I mean? So then it creates a whole system of disincentives um but it's not it's not just disincentive it's also giving people information that they probably other otherwise don't have because i don't think the majority of people actually know that processed meat is a group one carcinogen i don't think people a lot of people know that red meat on its own is a carcinogen or just animal protein in general or most people don't know the problems like the health risks and like why it's not good to eat milk and eggs you know well all you have to do is look at the news at one day and there's a new study coming out every other day one Mm -hmm. day eggs are great for you and the next day eggs are horrible for you one day you should be adding more bacon or whatever to Mm -hmm. your meal and and then another study comes out and that's what i was talking about before this contradictory information new diet fads coming out all the time Mm -hmm. Uh, nobody knows what to believe or what actually is healthy it's really hard for people to kind of sort through that information and figure out what actually is healthy and actually one of the articles i was reading actually i think dr greger was saying that it actually took over five thousand uh studies before anybody did anything about the cigarette Mm. industry and we're not near that with mm-hmm. with meat and dairy. So some people were saying that it's actually going to take a lot more before people actually uh understand the risks and before government is actually willing to get involved mm-hmm. and put those kind of pictures and labels and everything on because right now they're mm-hmm. very still concerned with protecting the industry as opposed mm-hmm. to informing the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean just as an aside, I don't like the argument that we should do this for health because then yeah. it's just playing on people's care about themselves and their own like appearance and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's important to care about your health, but I mean, we saw recently all of these vegan, very famous like vegan influencers and YouTubers and everything um, who were basically, you know, really young, probably teenage girls when they got into this. And a lot of them got into it because it was pitched 
at the time as this great way to like eat all these calories and still be thin and be beautiful and whatever. And so there was this whole culture around that. And a lot of those people are now not vegan anymore. And they're coming out and saying, oh, I, why I'm not vegan anymore, blah, blah, blah. And it's because they were never in it for political reasons in the first place. Like if you're yeah. doing this because of your health, then yeah, the moment some kind of study comes out that says, actually, it's fine to eat meat, you're going to be like, okay, great. Forget yeah. this, you know? Yeah. So uh, it's not a very good approach to, <laughs> to solving this problem. Anyway, uh, so moving on to environmental costs. I mean, these these costs, I think, are more compelling to people um, and are maybe a better argument than like, well, why should, why should we pay for it? This is actually harming our entire planet and we only have yeah. like 10 years to, to fix this. So, yeah. So animal agriculture is the second largest contributor to human-made greenhouse gas emissions after fossil fuels and is a leading cause of deforestation, water, air pollution, and biodiversity loss. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if people want to know more about this, I'd recommend watching Cowspiracy on netflix it's such and a good documentary it's such a good documentary and if you do some looking like people have disputed some of the stats that they use um which is fine it just gives a really great overview of mm -hmm. why animal agriculture is so environmentally damaging and inefficient and why it's not sustainable for us to continue animal agriculture into the future especially with the present day levels of co2 methane and nitrous oxide in our atmosphere. So animal agriculture is responsible for about 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions, which is more than the emissions caused by the transportation sector. So all the trucks, cars, etc. in the world. And the amount of land space that this takes is absolutely absurd. I mean, there's different stats on this. It's like a third of the, the Earth's total land or more than that is used for animal agriculture. Um, I think it's like close to half, actually. But a person who follows a vegan diet produces 50% less CO2, 1 11th the amount of oil, one thirteenth the amount of water used, and one eighteenth the amount of land compared to a meat eater. So the land needed to feed one person for one, for one year. As a vegan, it's one sixth of an acre, and a meat eater needs eighteen times that. And the reason for that is that not only do you have to clear all this land for the livestock to occupy themselves, you also have to clear all of this land to grow crops that the animals will eat. Because no, they aren't out there grazing happily on grass. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're very much confined <laughs> and being force-fed soy, corn, and grains that are really bad for their bodies and it's making them ill and then you're eating that. And importantly, animal agriculture is responsible for 60% of global non-CO2 emissions, so methane and nitrous oxide, which are very much more powerful than CO2. Methane is about 25 times as powerful as CO2, and nitrous oxide is about 300 times as powerful as CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So it's it's much more powerful at actually absorbing and re-emitting infrared rays back to the earth which is terrible. So we can even just emitting a bit of those gases is really impactful. 
And a study published in the journal Nature found that beef and lamb emit 280 times more greenhouse gases per calorie than the production of legumes. And chicken, which is supposed to be better, and it is, but still, it generates 65 times more emissions per calorie than legumes do. So scientists argue that huge reductions in meat eating are essential to avoid dangerous climate change, including a 90% drop in beef consumption in Western nations. And research also shows that if you replace beans with the same amount of protein as beef, like with beef, then that would lead to a 99% reduction in emissions from the animal agriculture industry. So we can just eat beans, y'all. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just to add a couple more uh, stats. Um, yeah, it takes a dozen times more water and five times more land to produce animal protein than equal amounts of plant protein. And the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy says that if we keep going the way that we are, uh, the world's livestock sector could be responsible for 80% of the greenhouse gas budget by 2050. Damn. Yeah. And actually, in, it's, it is a lot. And um, in Germany, they were adding up the costs for conventionally farmed meat. And they said if they took the environmental costs into consideration, which is, you know, the pollution from the nitrogen fertilizer, the greenhouse gas emissions, the energy use, um, it would cost three times what a consumer normally pays. So right now, obviously, we were just talking about cheap meat, we externalize those costs, so the consumer doesn't have to pay through all the things we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, if, if we actually took those costs into consideration, uh, it would cost three times more, which is a 196% increase. So hmm. we really should be taking that stuff into consideration. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad it, you said like, oh, producing the same amount of like protein and stuff. Because everyone's so concerned about protein and iron. Like yeah. um, even in these articles, I saw some of the, you know, meat and dairy executives being like, well, too bad we need this meat. We're providing all the iron to people and we're providing all of this and you can't get that from vegetables or whatever. And actually, there's roughly the same amount of iron in one and a half cups of cooked spinach than there is in an eight ounce steak. Yeah. So... It's the same with B12. They do the same thing with B12. Now, you can't get B12 from plants, but they, all they do with the animals is they give the animals supplements of B12. Right. And then we ingest that B12 through the animals, but it's the same as us taking supplements. So they make right. it seem like the animals intrinsically have B12 right. that plants don't have, which is not the case. It's like you can get all your nutrients from a plant-based diet. You can supplement with B12 and you'll be fine. Totally true. Anyway, okay, so the, <laughs> so those are all the costs. Yeah. And so this is why you know people are like, okay, we need to do something. We need to do something to encourage everyone to ditch this industry and reduce the the output etc so how are we going to do this so sweden denmark germany and i guess now the uk are all considering legislation to impose meat taxes so there's obviously a difference between taxing the emissions themselves so taxing the producers versus taxing the output 
meaning taxing the actual goods produced, which would fall to consumers. I mean, taxing the producers, you could argue, would also fall to consumers because they could just raise raise their prices. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's obviously there's a difference between taxing emissions themselves versus taxing the output. So when I first heard about this, I was thinking kind of along the lines of like the yellow jacket movement being like, you know, yes, we need to destroy this industry, but we can't just keep adding taxes to the working class. Like that's not appropriate. We should be hitting these companies themselves. Right. But then I read this article that was actually pretty compelling about how Although taxing emissions are generally preferable because they do address the discrepancy between private and social costs, in many cases, it won't actually be very effective to tax emissions because part of the reason that you tax emissions or you tax the producers is because you're trying to incentivize the producers to innovate their technology in such a way that they would reduce their overall emissions. Like you're incentivizing them to try to produce in a way that's more efficient and less environmentally damaging. However, in cases where one, the cost of monitoring monitoring emissions are high, two, there are limited options for reducing emissions apart from output reduction, and three, the possibilities for output substitution are great, then taxing the outputs or or the actual products and therefore the consumer is much more effective and like cost effective than taxing emissions. And they made the case that For example, they were looking at um, animal agriculture in the UK, and the greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture there are mainly from soil and vegetation carbon losses that you emit greenhouse gases when you convert forest into agricultural land. And nitrous oxide from, you know, the soils that are that are full of nitrogen based fertilizers. And methane from enteric fermentation in ruminants, (laughs) in other words, farting of the animals. So in order to tax the actual emissions of these greenhouse gases, because this isn't just like CO2 that's coming out of a smokestack or something, right? In order to tax the nitrous oxide coming from the soil and the methane coming from the farts of the animals, um, like you would need to monitor these at the farm level. So each individual farm would have to monitor all of this stuff. And these things are extremely difficult to monitor because the digestive tracts of animals like vary greatly, even between two identical animals, not identical animals, but two animals um, eating identical feed, the emissions between the two can vary up to a factor of two. And so like in order to get like a good enough representative sample for like an average or something, you need to sample like a significant number of animals and you'd have to measure them very regularly. And then also nitrous oxide emissions from soils are correlated with how much fertilizer is used, but also variation with that is larger is even larger than in the case of like the farting emissions. So they say an accurate monitoring of nitrous oxide emissions would require virtually continuous measurement for a great fraction of the fields at a farm. Obviously for both methane and nitrous oxide, the cost of such extensive emission monitoring schemes would be extremely high. So if you had like a government run monitoring program, like that would actually cost a ridiculous amount of money to be doing that and 
yeah, it probably would be like fairly inaccurate or like not that useful. And then more than that, greenhouse gas emissions per unit of food can be reduced by improving agriculture productivity. But um, they argue that like a lot of these things can't be actually improved that much because it's not like you can, it's not like farmers can actually fundamentally change the digestive process of their animals. And similarly, it's like difficult to reduce the nitrogen you're using in the soils required for like the yields to feed them, I guess. So like taxing the producers wouldn't really like it wouldn't really lead to them innovating more efficient ways of of doing this. It would uh, and they probably wouldn't like reduce the amount that they were producing either because they have to meet their market demand. So it would just, I don't know, like what it would do. I mean, like, maybe, like I guess they could just all go out of business, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they also said this, which I found really compelling about why taxing the emissions themselves would be perhaps not very productive in this global political economy. They said levying the tax on production in the EU would create a cost disadvantage for EU producers in relation to producers outside the EU, which would lead to a higher import ratio in EU food supply. Although the greenhouse gas emission from EU food production would decrease due to lower production in the EU, Global emissions would not decrease to the same extent since non-EU production would tend to increase due to larger exports to the EU. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, obviously, if you tax the producers themselves in your own country, then that would just lead to people buying cheaper meat elsewhere. And global emissions might even increase since non-EU food production in many cases has higher greenhouse gas intensity than in the EU. But even if you tax the uh, the products themselves, even if you tax the consumption level, emission leakage would not be entirely avoided because the decreased demand for meat in the EU would depress world meat prices and result in an increased meat consumption in non-EU countries. So I was also like, that's true. That's a good point to bring well, up. Well, yeah. And that's, I think you were going to say it before, but that's exactly why if you were to do something like this, it would have to be a global initiative, I think, right. because that kind of effect is always going to happen. If you start in one country, mm-hmm. business is always going to go or people were, will get their meat elsewhere. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it like this would need to, to be an international effort unless like they're proposing that you tax the consumption in one a country and you also apply the same taxes to imported meat. Okay. And their right. they their idea is to base the tax on how polluting that meat is to produce. So however many like you would you would look like across industries, you wouldn't be looking at the farm level, but you looking you'd be looking in general, red meat produces this many emissions to create this much red meat and then you would tax that accordingly so red meat would obviously be taxed the highest and then like chicken and dairy and eggs would be taxed less than that i mean their whole estimation of things seemed a bit like eh, because at the end i think it only resulted in like a seven percent decrease or something. Um, yeah. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's something. But also, 
if like red meat is being taxed the most, then it's like, okay, well then people will just eat fish and chicken and things like that instead of necessarily moving over. But anyway, so that to me, that was a like, I first, I was like, no, there's no reason to ever tax the consumers. And then I was like, oh, okay, I guess taxing the producers wouldn't necessarily be super productive as a route, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think then you also have to look at the effectiveness of taxing the consumers to like how large of a tax would you need and how significant would the changes be? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the one article I found addressed the relations between price increases or tax and food consumption and said that you would ultimately need to implement a very large tax to get a small decrease in consumption. So a study in the Nature Climate Change Journal said that a 40% tax on beef would decrease consumption by only 15%, which I guess, again, that is it, that is something. And from what I've seen, actually, what they're proposing is actually quite larger a tax than that, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. then again, you have <laughs> to me, if you're going to charge it, you know, not a a 90% tax, which is what some people, that is a big hit, I think, to, you know, low income families. And then you would also have to look at what they would be substituting. And Mm -hmm. like you were saying, it could be depending on on how the tax worked, they could perhaps move from say beef to chicken or something, or they might just go to really uh, highly processed or lower quality meats, in which case that would sort of defeat the whole purpose of Health-wise and environmentally-wise. Well, the the more processed meats are taxed even higher. Oh, high. Right, right, right. They're taxed higher, but they would still be cheaper overall, right? Because – so I guess – I don't know. Well, maybe not. I don't know. I'm just thinking – I'm thinking in the grocery store, aren't processed meats usually cheaper than – Yeah, but if they're, know, they're but taxed at like 110%. But if they're taxed that much higher, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean uh, – I thought that that was, you know, a compelling thing to think about in terms of um, the effectiveness of actually taxing consumers versus taxing emissions. Um, Obviously, there are complaints and, you know, pushback that we can give to this stuff. So first of all, there's complaints from, you know, family farmers and organic farmers, etc. However, I found that typical of a lot of these kind of controversies, for example, it was the same as Becky Ellis explained, it was the same when we were considering a ban of neonicotinoid pesticides in Ontario. You know, it was all these, they were like, oh, small farmers are going to be hurt by the tax or whatever. Even though um, in this last example, we were talking about taxing the consumers, not even the producers. But I guess if you're taxing the consumers, then they're not going to be buying the product. So it's still going to hurt the farmers. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them that I was finding are like, it's like these big farming conglomerates. And it's like, yeah, technically, this is a family farm, but it's clearly a corporate, like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's a family run corporate enterprise, you know? And that's not to say that I want anyone to be put out of business, but that's just not a good argument for maintaining an industry. It's the same with like coal. Like, should we keep digging up coal because there are some people who work in that industry who won't be able to work there anymore? Like, no. Um, Should we keep digging up the tar sands because it employs people? Fuck no, (laughs) you know? Um, So we definitely... 
like any kind of attacks that's going to be attacking like an entire industry or like attempting to reduce their output or uh, essentially put them out of business obviously needs to be coupled with huge uh, financial support for a transition plan. Plus, um, if you look at a lot of the evidence that I found suggests that jobs would be able to be shifted into other industries with the right resources. And um, Mm -hmm. one of the articles I looked at referred to the tobacco industry and how because of a huge campaign to to move tobacco farmers to growing grapes and lettuce and other plants, it was successful in getting them to to shift. So pretty Mm -hmm. much what you said, I think uh, we would just need different training, market uh, education, just different things to help farmers transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a lot of these articles are saying that people should be growing crops for biofuels, actually, because they're like that could even help even more. I don't, I don't really. I mean, biofuels aren't like that great, but anyway, it seems to be promoted a lot. But yeah, there's a lot of things that people could transition into, and definitely we would need to support that. And then obviously the biggest pushback on taxing the consumer instead of taxing the emissions um, is that in the current political economic system, this would probably just lead to meat being like a privilege of the rich, and yeah. only poor people would go without eating meat, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for sure. Mm-hmm. There was a great quote in The Guardian. Um, she just put this so perfectly, uh, talking about this, you know, meat being a privilege of the rich. It said, but to incentivize behavior by making things more expensive is to say that the rich can do whatever they please while the poor should go without. The weight of environmentally conscious decisions falls on those who can't afford to pay rather than on society as a whole. It's reverting to 18th century rules. The Mm. poor can eat beans while the rich eat meat. Choice becomes something only the rich deserve. And I just thought that summed up pretty well Mm -hmm. the attitude or or pretty much what's going on. And to me, there's just something (laughs) – there's just something very irksome when we're talking about low-income families or folks or – who are somehow made responsible for bearing the biggest responsibility for these things when, mm-hmm. when overall they're contributing the least. Mm-hmm. I, so I very much am still leaning towards that. I'm sympathetic to that argument, I guess I could say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also interesting that like right now in our present day society, it's kind of the opposite. It's like a lot of the vegan meats and like special cashew cheeses and all of that stuff is a luxury of the rich. Yeah, that's true. Where maybe there are a lot of low income people who would want to eat all these like good vegan foods, but it's out of their reach, you know what I mean? So they don't have the option of choice either. So it's just kind of interesting. And that's also because we subsidize meat to such a ridiculous degree that it is cheap enough for the masses to eat. And then plant foods and plant-based proteins, et cetera, are not. And I mean, obviously a lot of plant-based proteins are very affordable, like beans, like rice and beans and lentils and everything. You can obviously eat a vegan diet on uh, low income. However, yeah, for all these like fancy meats and fancy cheeses and stuff, like you, you can't, you can't get that. And that is, that's directly because of the subsidies. And it's almost like, you know, it's like people who live in food deserts now, are relegated to eating a lot of processed crap. Uh, that's the cheapest stuff they can get. So it's like, 
the stuff that is subsidized now for low-income families is is not very good, right? So it's like we should be subsidizing so much more like plant foods, you know? But anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, I just found it interesting that, that like when I was listening to that, I was like, oh, but that's kind of like what's going on now just in reverse. <laughs> you know? well, yeah, I think that brings up a good point too, because I think really what we need to look at is the attitude towards how we see meat. So Mm -hmm. that the quote that choice of meat or something becomes something the rich, only the rich deserve. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe we need to reframe that. That's obviously completely taking out of the picture, like uh, the animal. (laughs) And so that's not even considering the ethics of what we're doing to, to the animals, like that, that we think of meat or eating an animal as a luxury or something, you know, uh-huh. um, is a weird way to think about it. Or or just like just a personal choice that I'm making. Or, with, right. Like, you know. Exactly. The other thing too, an interesting proposal I found too, was if we were to tax the consumer, then also we could use those taxes to give individual tax rebates then like at the end of the year. One study I was looking at suggested a 50% tax on meat and a $500 tax tax credit. And you would think that that would then defeat the purpose. But what he was saying is that people would still eat meat occasionally, but then they would also transfer or pick other options as well. So his figures said that uh, that would lead to a 44% reduction in meat consumption, but I would have to check those numbers because that kind of goes against what I was reading in other articles. But yeah. I don't know. It's something to consider then, you know, giving a tax rebate so that people get some of that money back. Yeah. Or, or, like, so or it, like subsidizing so that like or subsidi- plant right. proteins are super yes. cheap and whatever. But yes. yeah, I mean, obviously that's the most important argument against this tax is that like it cannot hurt the working poor who yeah. – are not contributing or, or are contributing the least to the climate crisis, et cetera. Yeah. However, so Carolyn Lucas actually re- responded to that quote, I guess, from Poppy Noor ah. saying that our whole food system, and I agree with everything she said it in her response. So I was like, oh, okay, Carolyn, you're kind of selling me. Because yeah, at first I was like, no, the, like this is yellow jacket shit. Like, (laughs) but in agriculture. Anyway, um, she said, our whole food system needs radical overhaul so that no one is dependent on food banks. Farm workers are paid a living wage and our farmers role as custodians of nature is properly recognized. A meat tax would have to be part of a range of measures, including improved ways of managing manure and feed, stricter environmental and animal welfare standards. I mean, I don't like that. Like, obviously, the animal well, animal welfare inside these horrible industrial mm-hmm. farms. It's like, give me a fucking break. But anyway, and education and changes to school and workplace menus. Any tax would need to be phased in and give farmers the financial support and time to transition to more sustainable methods. Again, I'm like, more sustainable methods of rearing animals um hello or like moving out of rearing animals entirely yeah get out of here anyway revenues could be used to make nutritious plant food more affordable and then she i really agree with this she says to the extent that higher wages might still be necessary welfare and wages will need to increase we need a food system where the price of food reflects the true cost of production and an economic system where everyone can afford a healthy diet yeah. Boom. Yeah. I'm like, that's exactly it. And I mean, yes, <laughs> we also need to get rid of capitalism <laughs> just <Yes>. entirely. <laughs> um, but true. Yes. Like if, like if everyone's on an equal 
not an equal playing field, obviously welfare and wages increasing, but if everyone is able to afford food, no problem, and they have the choice of I'm going to pay extra for this meat, but it's not going to hinder my ability to live or pay rent or to whatever. Like if everyone has the option, um, I still think that they would be more disincentivized from buying meat if it was a lot more expensive and reflected its true cost of production. I mean, I think that's a really important part. Like, yeah, yeah, everything that we're consuming should reflect the cost its cost of production. However, yeah, within this political economy, if that were true, then people would not be able to live anymore. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And so yeah. that's the whole thing of capitalism. It's like you can't actually internalize the externalities of capitalism and have capitalism still function as a system. Like you can't exactly. internalize the environmental costs and then have people actually able to live and survive and to, to have labor uh, reproduce itself. It's not possible, right? right? So, but I mean, I think in the interim, like if we were going to try to like get people off meat through taxes then like yes at the very least everyone's wages or like welfare or every everything would have to be such that they could choose to eat that expensive food if they wanted to and have that be totally fine in terms of like their overall livelihood right right so that it would just be people making that choice and also like this this would have to be really coupled with information campaigns about the environmental cost of eating meat so it isn't just like oh boom you're it's more expensive deal with it without because people aren't going to make the choices unless there's like a lot of information that went on with it like with the tobacco thing a lot of information went on with that right exactly and like i would obviously want to see information campaigns about like the sentience of the animals and like their their right to live and like what happens to their bodies when they are commodified and the way that they're being bred for certain traits that are so damaging to them and the way that they're being kept in these horrible, horrible conditions and like having their babies ripped away if they're a dairy cow or whatever. And, ah, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like this, this whole time, like nobody's talking about the animals at all. And I mean, I guess I don't expect anyone to talk about the animals, if we're talking about like taxes, because this is all just about like cost effectiveness and like what kind of a burden is this placing on the taxpayer and like right. blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Because as you said, yeah, it's like we just treat it as like a choice. Like everyone should just have this consumer choice. Right. And I'm sure we're going to get a lot of pushback on this episode by being like, it is a choice. Like don't impose your values on me or you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's like, the, no, this is a sentient autonomous being. Right. Yes. That you are keeping captive and then slaughtering. Right. Like and abusing in the worst way just for your own pleasure. Yeah. And I think too, even like you were saying, I think there is some value in talking about too, that in some ways we have to frame it like this in the way that we're framing it now, but also there is value in looking at it in the bigger picture and looking at kind of how capitalism runs in a larger, larger picture in that consumer demand ultimately isn't actually really what's driving production. So this is Mm going to go kind of against maybe the tax, but There's a great quote by Marx, and he said that production produces consumption. 
And then he talks about the way that producers create a need in the consumer. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about the ways that the producers are sort of manufacturing our needs through subsidies, through advertising, everything we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And so by just saying that we need to cut consumption is actually not really taking into consideration the bigger picture. I mean, if consumption really drove production, then we wouldn't have a situation where we have enough food to feed the world like 1.5 times over or whatever, and billions of people still go hungry. Mm-hmm. So, and not to mention a third of the food that we produce goes to waste. Like I would actually, so whereas a tax could be part of this, I actually would much rather see us look at some of that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Because for me, Even if we did all the best practices as consumers, say we all went vegan, we all, uh, Maureen has a great video on this. Like, even Mm -hmm. if we went, all went vegan, um, like veganism right now is booming and so is meat consumption. And so is meat Mm -hmm. consumption. They're both booming at the same time. So I just think if we don't take into consideration how this system actually works, we're just going to make this all about consumption. And that's really ultimately actually not going to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. If we all did the best practices, we all consumed how we were supposed to, it still wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be enough to fix climate change. Right, yeah, like capitalism itself is unsustainable and well, would, yeah, uh, yeah. would still con- <laughs> lead us yeah, to Yeah, I, a- I mean, I don't want to make this – I mean, I guess that is what it comes down to is that overthrow capitalism. So <laughs> I, And I know that that is not pra- – <laughs> That's not practical. Practicable. I mean, it's not happening right now. So we do have to talk about these other issues, but it just – it's so hard for me to see – so hard to just look at mm-hmm. – all of this crap and how the yeah, system yeah. works. And, well, and- like, I agree that changing our consumption is not going to uh, fix the entire problem. But then I also do think that, like, if, you know, for example, like dairy farmers are actually like going out of business or switching to plant milks in a lot of places in North America, especially because they're going out of business because the demand isn't there, right? And yeah. so, I mean, in in some sense, it is like, well – it's it is important to get people to reduce what they're eating especially if their eating habits have been shaped by these lobbying firms and like all of the this creation of this ridiculous uh artificial demand um especially at the level of uh, of meat that we consume in North America i mean that's just obscene yeah. um it's like double the the level of like any other country you know what i mean yeah. and so i mean I think I think that actually could be quite powerful, especially if this went along with information campaigns about the animals, about the environment, about health. Like if if people actually understood, um, then I think that is really important to start dismantling this industry, you know, because I feel like even if we overthrew capitalism right now, I think the majority of people would still want to eat meat. Like they don't understand any of this, you know, they would just, they would just collectivize meat production. So I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's like nothing to actually reduce demand and, and make these, these industries transition to other things, you know? Well, so, and I agree with you and I guess, um, yeah, I don't think it has to be one or one or the other. You're right. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. because where does systemic change come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from individuals, right? Starting with individuals, getting together, creating change, influencing one another. So yeah, I mean, we're not ever going to have systemic change if we don't start with this stuff. It's just it's 
I think we need to talk about both and oh, of course. how we're going to create systemic change. But yeah, we, uh, yeah, we have to start mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So I hope everyone found this discussion useful. So I guess in the end, like we're, you know, hesitantly for a tax as long as it's only one small instrument in a much wider radical overhaul of our entire political economic system, but also our entire agricultural system and food system so that everyone can access food um, without having to struggle for it. And but you know collectively we agree that moving towards plant-based eating and like converting our land and using all that extra land for much better and more environmentally sustainable uses is what we need to be doing <laughs> right? absolutely yes right all right well thank you so much leslie for coming on the show thanks so much for having me on this was awesome <laughs> yes let great. us know what you think in the comments and on social media etc and we'll see you next time bye, bye. bye.